0: Footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav MavSky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares, where there may be an occasional screaming skull rolling about here at Dark Softly Tales. And hey, that's why you keep showing up, right? This is your host, Mav. And tonight, we move into the second part of F. Marion Crawford's The Screaming Skull. So you may have never heard of Francis Marion Crawford. But his books were bestsellers back in the late 1800s through the early 1900s. And he is one of the leading founders of the weird, strange, and fantastical tale. He was born in Italy to a sculptor and developed an interest in history. He later traveled to India and learned the Sanskrit language and studied religion. Then he came back home and started writing stories dealing with horror and the occult. One of his relatives told him he was going to be broke as a writer and that he would have a better career as an opera singer. So he tried that out and was told hands down by a conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra that he would never be able to sing a perfect tune. (laughs) This really amuses me because it's because he doesn't carry that perfect tune, that perfect beat that makes his writing so eerie, suspenseful, and unique like a high note that just quavers and feels alarming. Crawford knew how to full-on bring it to his weird and fantastical tales. So he's written many novels. I have them loaded up on my Kindle, but I found a particular quote that I thought might interest this audience from a novel called Zoroaster which takes place back in the Babylonian times of King Belshazzar Belshazzar, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Some of you may be familiar with the book of Daniel from the Bible, and this takes place during that time period. Zoroaster is known to be a famous prophet and presumed founder of astrology and magic. Zoroastrianism is still very alive today, and I actually just bought a couple books on it. And I'm going to research it because I find it really fascinating. Um, Since Crawford was a historian and did extensive research, no one knows if he bases this novel on true events that he discovered in his research or if he just made the whole thing up. No one really knows, but obviously our man Crawford here immersed himself into the occult and it really drew out his imagination. A teacher of mine recently said that all writers are prophets. And this quote, written over a hundred years ago, can give one pause to believe that very well may be true. I invite you to think about this quote in regard to today and what our world is going through. I'm also including this quote in the show notes so you can go back and read it. So it goes like this. The great law of division became clear to him the separation for a time of the universal agent into two parts. By the separation and reuniting of which comes light and heat and the hidden force of life and the prime rules of attractive action, all things that are accounted material. He saw the division of darkness and light and how all things that are in the darkness are reflected in the light and how the light which we call light is in reality darkness made visible. Whereas the true light is not visible to the eyes that are darkened by the gross veil of transitory being. And as from the night of earth, his eyes were gradually opened to the astral day. He knew that the forms that move and have being in the night are perishable and utterly unreal. Whereas the pure being, which is reflected in the real light is true and endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the freaking brilliance of Francis Marion Crawford. When he wasn't writing about the meaning of love, life, light, and darkness, he was writing the stories like you're listening to today. You know, screaming skulls, boiling lead, being poured down ears of children, that sort of thing. Don't worry, though. You got this. There's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Screaming Skull by F. Marion Crawford Part 2 Narrated by Mav Sky I don't wonder you take me up on what I'm saying first I tell you that I don't want to know what happened and that I hate to think about horrors and then I describe the whole thing to you as if I had seen it I'm quite sure that it was her work bag that he put there I remember the bag very well for she always used it of an evening it was made of brown plush And when it was stuffed full, it was about the size of... You understand. Yes, there I am, at it again. You may laugh at me, but you don't live here alone, where it was done, and you didn't tell Luke the story about the melted lead. I'm not nervous, I tell you, but sometimes I begin to feel that I understand why some people are. I dwell on this when I'm alone and I dream of it, and when that thing screams, well, frankly, I don't like the noise any more than you do, though I should be used to it by this time. I ought not to be nervous. I have sailed in a haunted ship. There was a man in the top, and two-thirds of the crew died of the West Coast fever inside of ten days after we anchored. But I was all right, then and afterward. I have seen some ugly sights too, just as you have, and all the rest of us, but nothing ever stuck in my head in the way that this does. You see, I've tried to get rid of the thing, but it doesn't like that. It wants to be there in its place, in Mrs. Pratt's bandbox in the cupboard in the best bedroom. It's not happy anywhere else. How do I know that? Because I've tried it? You don't suppose that I've not tried, do you? As long as it's there, it only screams now and then, generally at this time of year. But if I put it out of the house, it goes on all night, and no servant will stay here 24 hours. As it is, I have often been left alone and have been obliged to shift for myself for a fortnight at a time. No one from the village would ever pass a night under the roof now. And as for selling the place, or even letting it, that's out of the question. The old women say that if I stay here, I shall come to a bad end myself before too long. I'm not afraid of that. You smile at the mere idea that anyone could take such nonsense seriously. Quite right. It's utterly blatant nonsense. I agree with you. Didn't I tell you that it's only a noise after all when you started and looked round as if you expected to see a ghost standing behind your chair? I may be all wrong about the skull and I'd like to think that I am when I can. It may be just a fine specimen which Luke got somewhere long ago. And what rattles about inside when you shake it may be nothing but a pebble, or a bit of hard clay, or anything. Skulls that have lain long in the ground generally have something inside them that rattles, don't they? No, I've never tried to get it out, whatever it is. I'm afraid it might be lead, don't you see? And if it is, I don't want to know the fact, for I'd much rather not be sure. If it really is, lad, I killed her quite as much as if I had done the deed myself. Anybody must see that, I should think. As long as I don't know for certain, I have the consolation of saying that it's all utterly ridiculous nonsense that Mrs. Pratt died a natural death and that the beautiful skull belonged to Luke when he was a student in London. But if I were quite sure, I believe I should have to leave the house. Indeed I do, most certainly. As it is, I had to give up trying to sleep in the best bedroom, where the cupboard is. You ask me why I don't throw it into the pond. Yes, but please don't call it a confounded bugbear. It doesn't like being called names. There. The tide must have turned too, by the moaning. We should not have heard the thing again, if you had not said that. I'm pretty sure we should not. Oh yes, if you choose to describe it as a coincidence, you are quite welcome, but I would rather that you should not call the thing names again, if you don't mind. It may be that the poor little woman hears, and perhaps it hurts her, don't you know? Ghosts? No, you don't call anything a ghost that you can take in your hands and look at in broad daylight, and that rattles when you shake it. Do you know? But it's something that hears and understands. There's no doubt about that. I tried sleeping in the best bedroom when I first came to the house. Just because it was the best and the most comfortable, but I had to give it up. It was their room, and there's the bed that she died in. And the cupboard is in the thickness of the wall, near the head, on the left. That's where it likes to be kept, in its bandbox. I only used the room for a fortnight after I came. And then I turned out and took the little room downstairs next to the surgery where Luke used to sleep when he expected to be called to a patient during the night. I was always a good sleeper ashore. Eight hours is my dose, 11 to 7 when I'm alone, 12 to 8 when I have a friend with me. But I could not sleep after 3 o'clock in the morning in that room. A quarter past, to be accurate. As a matter of fact, I timed it with my old pocket chronometer, which still keeps good time, and it was always at exactly 17 minutes past 3. I wonder whether that was the hour when she died. It was not what you have heard. If it had been that, I could not have stood it two nights. It was just a start and a moan and hard breathing for a few seconds in the cupboard and it could never have waked me under ordinary circumstances, I'm sure. I suppose you're like me in that, and we are just like other people who have been to sea. No natural sounds disturb us at all. Not all the racket of a square-rigger hove-to in a heavy gale, or rolling on her beam ends before the wind. But if a lead pencil gets adrift and rattles in the drawer of your cabin table, you are awake in a moment. Just so, you always understand. Very well. The noise in the cupboard was no louder than that, but it waked me instantly. I said it was like a start. I know what I mean, but it's hard to explain without seeming to talk nonsense. Of course, you cannot exactly hear a person's start. At the most, you might hear the quick drawing of the breath, between the parted lips and closed teeth and the almost imperceptible sound of clothing that moved suddenly, though very slightly. It was like that. When the dawn came, I put on my boots and went out to find the bandbox. I had to go a good way round by the gate near the high road. And I found the box open and hanging on the other side of the hedge. It had caught on the twigs by the string, and the lid had fallen off and was lying on the ground below it. That shows that it did not open till it was well over, and if it had not opened as soon as it left my hand, what was inside it must have gone beyond the road too. That's all. I took the box upstairs to the cupboard and put the skull back and locked it up. When the girl brought me my breakfast, she said that she was sorry, but that she must go, and she did not care if she lost her month's wages. I looked at her, and her face was a sort of greenish, yellowish white. I pretended to be surprised, and asked what was the matter. But that was of no use, for she just turned on me and wanted to know whether I meant to stay in a haunted house, and how long I expected to live if I did, for though she noticed I was sometimes. A little hard of hearing. She did not believe that even I could sleep through those screams again. And if I could, why had I been moving about the house and opening and shutting the front door between three and four in the morning? There was no answering that, since she had heard me, so off she went, and I was left to myself. I went down to the village during the morning and found a woman who was willing to come and do the little work there is and cook my dinner, on condition that she might go home every night. As for me, I moved downstairs that day and I have never tried to sleep in the best room since. After a little while, I got a brace of middle aged Scotch servants from London, and things were quiet enough for a long time. I began by telling them that the house was in a very exposed position and that the wind whistled around it a good deal in the autumn and winter, which had given it a bad name in the village, the Cornish people being inclined to superstition and telling ghost stories. The two hard-faced, sandy-haired sisters almost smiled, and they answered with great contempt that they had no great opinion of any southern boogie whatever having been at service in two English haunted houses, where they had never seen so much as the boy in grey, whom they reckoned no very particular rarity and forfarshire. They stayed with me several months, and while they were in the house, we had peace and quiet. One of them is here again now, but she went away with her sister within the year. This one, she was the cook married the Sexton, who works in my garden. That's the way of it. It's a small village, and he has not much to do. And he knows enough about flowers to help me nicely. Besides, doing most of the hard work. For though I'm fond of exercise, I'm getting a little stiff in the hinges. He's a sober, silent sort of fellow, who minds his own business. And he was a widower when I came here. Traherne is his name. James Traherne. The Scotch sisters would not admit that there was anything wrong about the house. But when November came, they gave me warning that they were going, on the ground that the chapel was such a long walk from here, being in the next parish, and that they could not possibly go to our church. But the younger one came back in the spring. As soon as the bans could be published, she was married to James Treherne by the vicar she seems to have had no scruples about hearing him preach since then. I'm quite satisfied if she is. The couple live in a small cottage that looks over the churchyard. I suppose you are wondering what all this has to do with what I was talking about. I'm alone so much that when an old friend comes to see me, I sometimes go on talking just for the sake of hearing my own voice. But in this case, there is really a connection of ideas. It was James Treherne who buried poor Mrs. Pratt and her husband after her in the same grave, and it's not far from the back of his cottage. That's the connection in my mind, you see. It's plain enough. He knows something. I'm quite sure that he does, by his manner, though he's such a reticent beggar. Yes, I'm alone in the house at night now, for Mrs. Treherne does everything herself. And when I have a friend, the sexton's niece comes in to wait on the table. He takes his wife home every evening in winter, but in summer, winter's light, she goes by herself. She's not a nervous woman, but she is less sure than she used to be that there are no boogies in England worth a Scotch woman's notice. Isn't it amusing, the idea that Scotland has a monopoly of the supernatural? Odd sort of national pride, I call that, don't you? <sighs> That's a good fire, isn't it? When driftwood gets started at last, there's nothing like it, I think. Yes, we get lots of it, for I'm sorry to say there are still a great many wrecks about here. It's a lonely coast, and you may have all the wood you want for the trouble of bringing it in. Treherne and I borrow a cart now and then, and load it between here and the spit. I hate the coal fire when I can get wood of any sort. A log is company, even if it's only a piece of deck beam or timber sawn off, and the salt in it makes pretty sparks. See how they fly? Like Japanese hand fireworks? Upon my word, with an old friend and a good fire and a pipe, One forgets all about that thing upstairs, especially now that the wind has moderated. It's only a lull though, and it will blow a gale before morning. You think you would like to see the skull? I've no objection. There's no reason why you shouldn't have a look at it. You never saw a more perfect one in your life. Except that there are two front teeth missing in the lower jaw. Oh yes, I had not told you about the jaw yet. Treherne found it in the garden last spring when he was digging a pit for a new asparagus bed. You know we make asparagus beds six or eight feet deep here. Yes, yes, I had forgotten to tell you that. He was digging straight down, just as he digs a grave. If you want a good asparagus bed made, I advise you to get a sexton to make it for you. Those fellows have a wonderful knack at that sort of digging. Traherne had gotten down about three feet when he cut into a mass of white lime at the side of the trench. He had noticed that the earth was a little looser there, though he says it had not been disturbed for a number of years. I suppose he thought that even old lime might not be good for asparagus, so he broke it out and threw it up. It was pretty hard, he says, in biggish lumps and out of sheer force of habit, he cracked the lumps with his spade as they lay outside the pit beside him. The jawbone of a skull dropped out of one of the pieces. He thinks he may have knocked out the two front teeth in breaking up the lime, but he did not see them anywhere. He's a very experienced man in such things, as you may imagine, and he said at once that the jaw had probably belonged to a young woman and that the teeth had been complete when she died. He brought it to me and asked me if I wanted to keep it. If I did not, he said he would drop it into the next grave he made in the churchyard, as, he supposed, it was a Christian jaw, and ought to have a decent burial, wherever the rest of the body may be. I told him that doctors often put bones into quicklime to whiten them nicely, and that I supposed Dr. Pratt had once had a little lime pit in the garden for that purpose, and had forgotten the jaw. Treherne looked at me quietly. Maybe it fitted that skull that used to be in the cupboard upstairs, sir, he said. Maybe Dr. Pratt had put the skull into the lime to clean it, or something. And when he took it out, he left the lower jaw behind. There's some human hair sticking in the lime, sir. I saw there was, and there was what Treherne said If he did not suspect something, why in the world should he have suggested that the jaw might fit the skull? Besides, it did. That's proof that he knows more than he cares to tell. Do you suppose he looked before she was buried? Or perhaps when he buried Luke in the same grave? Well, well, it's of no use to go over that, is it? I said I would keep the jaw with the skull and I took it upstairs and fitted it into its place. There's not the slightest doubt about the two belonging together. And together, they are. Traherne knows several things. We were talking about plastering the kitchen a while ago, and he happened to remember that it had not been done since the very week when Mrs. Pratt died. He did not say that the mason must have left some lime on the place, but he thought it and that it was the very same lime he had found in the asparagus pit. He knows a lot. Traurn is one of your silent beggars who can put two and two together. That grave is very near the back of his cottage too, and he's one of the quickest men with a spade I ever saw. If he wanted to know the truth, he could, and no one else would ever be the wiser unless he chose to tell. In a quiet village like ours, People don't go and spend the night in the churchyard to see whether the sexton potter is about by himself between 10 o'clock and daylight. What is awful to think of is Luke's deliberation, if he did it. His cool certainty that no one would find him out. Above all, his nerve, for that must have been extraordinary. I sometimes think it's bad enough to live in the place where it was done, if it was really done. And I always put in the condition, you see, for the sake of his memory, and a little bit for my own sake, too. I'll go upstairs and fetch the box in a minute, let me light my pipe. There's no hurry. We had supper early, and it's only half past nine o'clock. I never let a friend go to bed before twelve, or with less than three glasses. You may have as many more as you like, but you shan't have less, for the sake of old times. It's breezing up again. Do you hear? That was only a lull just now. And we're going to have a bad night. A thing happened that made me start a little when I found that the jaw fitted exactly. I'm not very easily startled in that way myself, but I have seen people make a quick movement, drawing the breath sharply when they thought they were alone, and suddenly turned and saw someone very near them. Nobody can call that fear. You wouldn't, would you? No. Well, just when I set the jaw in its place under the skull, the teeth closed sharply in my finger. It felt exactly as if it were biting me hard. And I confess that I jumped before I realized that I had been pressing the jaw and the skull together with my other hand. I assure you, I was not at all nervous, it was broad daylight too, and a fine day, and the sun was streaming into the best bedroom. It would have been absurd to be nervous, and it was only a quick mistaken impression, but it really made me feel queer. Somehow, it made me think of the funny verdict of the coroner's jury on Luke's death. By the hand or teeth of some person or unknown animal. Ever since that, I've wished I had seen those marks on his throat, though the lower jaw was missing then. I have often seen a man do insane things with his hands that he does not realize at all. I once saw a man hanging on by an old awning stop with one hand, leaning backward, outboard, with all his weight on it. And he was just cutting the stop with his knife in his other hand when I got my arms around him. We were in mid-ocean, going 20 knots. He had not the smallest idea what he was doing. Neither had I when I managed to pinch my finger between the teeth of that thing. I can feel it now. It was exactly as if it were alive, and were trying to bite me. It would, if it could. For I know it hates me. Poor thing. Do you suppose that what rattles about inside it is a bit of lead? Well... I'll get the box down presently, and if whatever it is happens to drop out into your hands, that's your affair. If it's only a clod of earth or a pebble, the whole matter would be off my mind, and I don't believe I should ever think of the skull again. But somehow, I cannot bring myself to shake out the bit of hard stuff myself. The mere idea that it might be lead makes me confoundedly uncomfortable. Yet I've got the conviction that I shall know before long. I shall certainly know. I'm sure Traherne knows, but he's such a silent beggar. I'll go upstairs now and get it. What? You had better go with me? (laughs) Haha, do you think I'm afraid of a bandbox and a noise? As if the ridiculous thing understood what it's wanted for. Look at that, the third match. They light fast enough for my pipe. Ah, there, do you see? It's a fresh box, just out of the tin safe where I keep the supply on account of the dampness. Oh, you think the wick of the candle may be damp, do you? Alright, I'll light the beastly thing in the fire. That won't go out, at all events. Yes, it sputters a bit, but it'll keep lighted now. It burns just like any other candle, doesn't it? The fact is, candles are not very good about here. I don't know where they come from, but they have a way of burning low occasionally, with a greenish flame that spits tiny sparks, and I'm often annoyed by their going out of themselves. That's the truth. I never dropped one in my life, but I have always thought I might, and it's so confoundedly dangerous if you do. Besides, I am pretty well used to those rotten candles by this time. You may as well finish that glass while I'm getting it, for I don't mean to let you off with less than three before you go to bed. You won't have to go upstairs either, for I've put you in the old study next to the surgery. That's where I live myself. The fact is, I never ask a friend to sleep upstairs now. The last man who did was Krackenthorpe, and he said he was kept awake all night. You remember old Crack, don't you? He's stuck to the service, and they've just made him an admiral. Yes, I'm off now, unless the candle goes out. I couldn't help asking if you remembered, Crackenthorpe. If anyone had told us that the skinny little idiot he used to be was to turn out to be the most successful of a lot of us, we should have laughed at the idea, shouldn't we? You and I did not do badly, it's true. But I'm really going now. I don't mean to let you think that I've been putting it off by talking as if there was anything to be afraid of. If I were scared, I should tell you so quite frankly and get you to go upstairs with me. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side.